Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. I'm really, really happy to be here today with one of my very, very favorite leaders, Kevin Brown. Kevin and I have had a chance to work together in the past, but he and I both left that role and he founded a really fast growing company called Friction Labs, which he'll tell you all about. So Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sue. Well, we'll start this conversation like we start all the conversations on this podcast. We just love to get your, I don't know, two, three minute life story. How'd you get here? I actually started out as a high school science teacher, did that for a while, uh, kind of jumped into sales. Uh, figured out I was pretty good at getting people to say yes to stuff. So I kind of uh, went from doing it myself to creating sales machines with uh, a whole bunch of people and had some had some success at a couple of companies. Uh, actually, I'm fortunate meeting you at one of those last companies. And um, you know, uh, along the way, I started a rock climbing gym with a couple of buddies, and I got that first entrepreneurial bug. And uh, I've always really uh, in pur- been in pursuit of freedom. And it seems like having your own company and having your own schedule is really the way to get the most freedom. So, uh, you know, when the right idea uh, came to light and with the right person, we went for it. Tell us about your current company. Tell us about Friction Labs. Awesome. So we make chalk, which at, uh, on the surface sounds really boring, but it's actually pretty exciting. Chalk is something that uh, sports have taken for granted for a long time. It's been marketed them as 100% magnesium carbonate. When it's not, there's a bunch of fillers and stuff in it. To give you a little bit of the backstory, um, I got some bad chalk, and uh, it impacted the way I climbed. And I'm a little obsessive about climbing, so anything that that impacts that negatively uh, can't be the case. So uh, my wife's a geologist, luckily, got into a random conversation about chalk. She pointed me to a couple of PhDs. We did some testing. We found some things that uh, we could improve on. We improved on it. Proof was in the pudding when we took it to the climbing gym and a bunch of buddies were stealing out of my bag. So we knew that it was really good. And from there, uh, launched a website and randomly one day when I finally actually got my son to fall asleep and I could sit down, I got my first order from some random dude in Ohio. And ever since then, we've uh, we've kind of been on a roller coaster. It's been fun. When was the launch of this website, Kev? Uh, probably been like the first week of March of 2014. I'm sure other people are wondering this. Maybe they're not rock climbers, but I know now that you're using chalk for all sorts of sports. How did you know you got bad chalk? What is bad chalk? Bad chalk, uh, so the whole point of chalk is to get a good grip. You should have like a very thin layer and your hand should feel tacky. Um, and uh, when you have too much chalk on your hand, it actually acts as a dry lubricant. So every time I would grab a hold, my hand felt a little bit slimy. And as soon as you get like that little micro sensation of not sticky good friction, um, then your whole body is like starts questioning if you can do it. And then your performance sucks and it blows. So it's, uh, it's, it's much like in golf when you have like that crisp, perfect autumn weather and you grab your clubs and you know you've got the grip exactly right and you grip it and rip it and it goes exactly where you want it to. That's, that's when you know you have good shock. Chalk equals grip. Cool. So if you look at Friction Labs, first of all, what percentage now of revenue is delivered direct? And actually, before we get there, why don't you talk a little bit about your direct business over the web? Sure. So when we started out, um, the only place that you can get chalk is in climbing gyms and REI and all like the big retail stuff. So it's really difficult as a no-name company to get shelf space there. So we started out direct. Uh, we offered subscriptions and one-time purchases. And from there, um, you know, like we really had to change things up. Usually you buy chalk and it's in like a plain bag. It's really, it's marketed poorly. 
So we came up with three different textures. Uh, we did the, we gave them all unique names like unicorn dust and gorilla grip and bam bam. Uh, we put them in shiny bags. We gave them a little bit of like characters, a little bit of backstory. And we just had a lot more fun than other people did when we were talking to our customer base or hopefully growing customer base. Yeah, we put out this video called Stop FD, uh, which FD stands for Frictile Dysfunction. It's a make-believe syndrome. Well, it actually exists, but no one's actually coined it until us. So so we made this funny video. You can go check it out at stopfd.com. From there, we got a bunch of people who started following us. Facebook numbers started to pick up. Instagram numbers started to pick up. Website traffic started to pick up. And then um, wholesalers started to pay attention. And now we're pretty much everywhere you could be. In addition to that, we have a, a growing uh, direct business, which is really fun. Talk to me. I know that you took a made a foray into big wholesale here in the last year. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's been great. Uh, we're with REI and EMS and MEC and, well, anyone else has three letters to abbreviate their name, we're going to be on their shelves as well. It's gone well. Uh, like, you know, with rock climbing chalk, people have historically bought it from certain places. So you kind of don't really exist until you are also on the shelf in those places. It makes your product real. Um, there are some people who prefer to buy it online, but for the most part, it's kind of an impulse buy. Like, it's, it, to, to make a golf analogy, like, you show up, if you don't have any balls, you gotta buy balls to go play. Like, it's the same thing in, ch- like, climbing. If you don't have chalk, you can't, you can't climb. You need chalk. So a lot of people just buy it when they're out. And it, it's been a lot of effort, actually, to get people to change that buying behavior, engage with our brand, and come, come buy on our site. What did you do to, to get your, Chalk accepted by an incredibly, I don't want to go too far because this is, these are your people, but a, a, a pretty snobby audience, like very, very particular. How did you get adoption in this, the sport where people really care about everything they use? Well, I think, I think that's the reason why we got the adoption, um, is because it works better. We went to the most skeptical people. I've been climbing for almost 20 years. So, uh, it's not, it's a, it's a growing sport, but it's not that big. So I'm kind of connected, you know, usually through Facebook to most of the like influential people. So I just went to the biggest naysayers that were out there, like the, the hardest to convince. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to call them curmudgeon but like they, they really like they demand a lot out of their products. They're not quick to say positive things about anything. And if they do, they usually tell you everything that's wrong and maybe the few things that are good. So I just messaged them and usually at like 4.35 in the morning because I had another job at that time. And I just said, Hey man, I started this chalk company. If I sent you a bunch of samples, would you just tell me what it's like? You could keep the chalk. So I would just send it out to people. Then I would get these like ode to chalk emails and every, like everyone had the sweatiest hands and it's been a huge problem for them. And the chalk stayed on their hands longer and they sent their project and they were psyched and they wanted to work with us. And I was like, cool. Just post that. Just just take that exact thing you told me and put it on Facebook, and that's cool, man. Like, we're all good. And that's that's kind of how it started. Are you willing to talk a little bit about how the REI relationship got started? Sure. Um, complete luck. Uh, it was a Sunday morning, and uh, they had a buyer in place for about, I think she was there for 11 or 12 years. Uh, a new guy came in, and uh, he's trying to shake things up and bring in uh, products that make REI uh, a really the place to buy climbing gear, uh, which is something that's kind of uh, moved away from them in the last couple of years. So he came across our product. He filled out a form on our website. Uh, I got it, uh, OCD, Sunday morning. So I immediately responded back to him because at that point in time, anything that happened to Friction Labs were alerts all over my phone. And uh, we actually talked a little bit later that day. 
And uh, I said I was going to come up to Seattle to meet him. He said, hey, it's not that big of a deal. Let's talk at the Outdoor Retailer Show. I was like, no, it's really actually a huge deal. Um, and he said, I get it. It's huge. Let's, let's talk at Outdoor Retailer. I'll make you my first appointment on the first day. So Outdoor Retailer is this big outdoor trade show. It was our first big trade show. So uh, it was really funny going from someone who had gone to a bunch of trade shows on someone else's dime to actually paying for it. You, you do things a lot differently. Um, a lot differently. So at any event, first day, the show opens at 9 o'clock. Our appointment was at 8.30. By 8.40, we were shaking hands, agreed on terms, and uh, they did a pilot in 35 stores, killed it, sold out a bunch of times, and then we now we're in all 146. We're in end caps in half of them, and it's a great relationship. They're an awesome partner. It's a win-win for everyone involved. Do they mind that you have a direct business? Do they like it? Do they not like it? Uh, you know, early on, they said that they look for companies that don't have a direct business. At, the, at this point, like, it's part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. So if you're going to work with us, it's just kind of there. From my point of view, it's not competitive. Like, people buy where they want to buy. It's in, in climbing, wherever the local area or crag to go climbing is, that's where you go the most. The climbing gym that's closest to you, you go there the most. And wherever you buy your chalk, that's where you buy it. It's like when you sell on Amazon or in retail or on a website, you're not stealing buyers from one another. You're meeting buyers where they are in different mediums. And if you don't exist in those mediums, then you don't get to be seen by those buyers. So what's your breakdown today, ballpark, between direct and wholesale? Uh, wholesale is about 50% of our business. Wow. Direct's about uh, 35 and then Amazon's about 15. I know you're getting way beyond rock climbing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the next sport that we're really focusing on is CrossFit. You know, it, it's we need sports that use chalk today. Trying to create the new behavior of, of using a new product is kind of difficult. So uh, we're, we're, we're sending, doing the exact same thing that we did. Hey, we started this chalk company. Would you be willing to try it out? It's on us. We'll send it to you. And, uh, you know, it's been early, but the initial feedback's really good. And in CrossFit, it's crazy. Like, I know a bunch about climbing. CrossFit, I'm a total neophyte. And the, the component of time in CrossFit is so important. And saving seconds is really important. And with my chalk, you use less. It stays on your hands longer. So you don't have to stop in the middle of your workout and chalk up, which could cost you three or five seconds. And that could happen three or four times in a workout. And now all of a sudden you're talking about 20 or 30 seconds. That conversation, that reasoning, that's the difference that makes the difference in in CrossFit right now. That's great for you guys. So if we look at sort of brand, product, operations and people. If we look at those four factors that might be driving the success of your company, in particular, I'm pretty interested in the relationship between the branding, which if anyone listening goes to frictionlabs.com, I mean, not only is this branding better than chalk, which had terrible branding, but it's better than almost any branding in a very, very brand sensitive category. It's just unbelievably strong. So how do you think the success of Friction Labs is tied to maybe in relationship to each other, to brand versus product? Well, I think we're really fortunate in that we came into climbing at at a really special time. Most of the the big guys have been there for a really, really long time. So that means that they never really had the opportunity to go direct because they they were doing it before direct was really a thing or possible. So they would get their stuff into the distribution channel, which was all of these retailers. And then if you didn't have direct... And you start doing direct, then it's like, whoa, whoa, now, now you're stealing from us. Like, you didn't have this, now you're taking customers away. 
But we had direct from the beginning, so we got a, a little bit of grace. I think that the, at the same way, like those brands have been around a longer, so they're a little bit more conservative. Climbing is this, like, it's dangerous and exciting. Historically, it wasn't done in a climbing gym. Like, historically, like, you could get really hurt if you went climbing and you used bad gear. Like, it was more pioneer to sort of spirit, dirtbag sort of thing. And in just the last couple of years, there's been this huge new channel and huge new opportunity of climbing gyms, which makes it way safer and way easier uh, to enjoy the sport. So the buyers, like that buyer demographic has rapidly changed and no one's really shifted or changed their approach to talk to all those people. So the way that they talk to climbers is this like very heroic images, like, holy cow, like that, that looks scary as hell. And it's in a magazine, like sort of picture. And, you know, there's, there's a small number of people that are actually doing that, um, relative to all the people going climbing. So we took a different approach and we said, instead of like appealing to that 1%, like we want to appeal to the 50%. In, in climbing, there's grades of difficulty, right? In, in, in one, in one scale, like a, a V1 is pretty easy and a V15, there's like maybe five or six people in the world that have done that thing, right? So there's a hell of a lot more like V1, V2, V3, V4, V5 climbers than there are other climbers, uh, like these really high end climbers. So we wanted to make sure our brand was approachable to those folks. And we also wanted to put out a product that appealed to not only them, but also appealed to the super high end. So it's really that juxtaposition of product and brand that allows us to kind of talk to the whole market. Kev, you talked about the fact that you really, after being a science teacher, really, really found your zone in sales. And I've seen you do it, but I think you're a unique salesperson. And I wonder, what do you think makes you really good at sales and then what do you look for in other people when you are hiring people who you want to be doing sales, whether they're salespeople or in some senior role? Well, well, thank you. I had the fortune of meeting you after I had matured quite a bit. If we would have met early on in my sales career, I doubt you would have said anything that nice about me. <laughs> uh, I, I think the thing that I figured out is empathy. No one wants to be sold. Everyone wants to buy. And, and buying is totally different than being sold. So the way that people buy, everyone buys for a different reason, even when they're buying the exact same products. You don't know what that is until you listen to people. And you can't really listen to people until you can be empathetic to everything about them and their scenario and, and everything that's going on. Um, and it not like, I don't want to say empathy in sort of like a, like there's no power levels sort of thing there. It's just, I genuinely would care why the other person was buying and if I thought that they were buying for the wrong reason or they were confused, I went out of my way to explain why they were making a bad decision based on that logic. And then I got pretty decent at, you know, also telling them why they should say yes based on that logic. Yeah, I think that's probably what separates me. So the, when I, when I hire someone, I really look for that ability to listen and empathetic. Like I don't want the bravado person who charges through the room and she tells everyone why she's the greatest thing on the planet or anything like that. I want the person who, who is willing to do the work, but when they get the opportunity to have a conversation, they listen more than they talk. The thing about you though is you actually have a pretty forceful personality. I mean, you're a pretty aggressive guy. So how do you marry that kind of leaned back listening approach? With this tenacity that I know, I mean, it's even, it comes through just listening to you talk, how tenacious you are. How do you put those things together? I think you fight like hell to get the conversation. And when you get it, you don't blow it. So that, that, that's it. And you can be aggressive asking for the conversation. 
You can even kind of push it a bit to get the conversation. When you get the conversation going, you got to stop shouting and start listening and just have a conversation. What do you think has worked best in building your online brand? Is this, I know Frictile Dysfunction was a video that got, you know, tens of thousands of views. I know that was super popular. What other successes have happened for you guys to drive buy-in for your really still brand new brand? I think our email marketing, uh, my partner actually heads that up and he has a great voice and connection through email marketing and we're not afraid to make fun of ourselves and have fun. We, we're just really transparent with anyone who pays attention to our brand. And like we recently we made a mistake. Uh, we got this new product. We put it in a container. We baked it. We did all these things to make sure it was going to work. What we didn't realize is that climbers have grips like Gorilla. And as soon as they like would put a little force on the side, it would kind of break the seal a little bit. And then part of the component would like vaporize out and then it would dry up. So uh, we put our heads together and we said that, well, we're going to take everything we have and we're going to give it away back to these people because some of them work. And as long as they're careful with it, it works. We're going to get made in new tubes that this isn't going to happen. Then we're going to send everyone that bought anything from us the exact same order in the new thing. So they're really not out anything. And I think, I think being genuine in our communication and then being, not being afraid to tell people that story and what we're going to do to fix it. I think that's what's really created a, a, a good direct audience. And, and some people really, um, they gravitate towards that. And then when they gravitate towards that, then they want to interact with us online. That makes a lot of sense. Authenticity seems to be the driving word right now. You worked in large companies. You alluded to that. You didn't mention, I mean, you worked in really large companies like ADP, uh, driving sales, B to small business. And you said that you wanted to have more freedom. I wonder after two years of being in your own business, is freedom here? Do you have more? Do you have less? Oh yeah. Freedom is here. Freedom is present. Freedom is grand. <laughs> Say more about that because you work, I think, pretty darn hard, right? It's not about not working. Yeah, I do. I, I, I work a little obsessively. My wife would probably tell you maybe a little too much. Um, it's, it's the freedom to control my schedule. So yesterday was uh, in Evergreen, Colorado. It was sunny and 64. One of my best friends did a, a life shift, changed some things around and created some freedom for him. So we went climbing. And we climbed until like three o'clock. It was glorious. It was, it was, it was a fantastic day. Amazing climbs were sent. It was, it was great. Everything about it was awesome. And the whole time, I didn't have to feel guilty. I didn't have to check my phone. In fact, I turned my phone off because I, did, I wasn't available. I was climbing. That's the freedom I'm talking about. Like I, I'm in charge of me. There's no mistakes I can make. I'm not stealing time from someone else. Like I'm doing what I'm doing. And I came home. And I had I had to work. I had stuff I had to do. Uh, I didn't go to bed early that night. I, I kind of burned the candle at both ends a little bit. But I woke up this morning with a huge smile on my face, and my skin's a little torn, and my muscles are sore because I got to go spend a day climbing with my good friend. And that's that's rad. Like we actually talked about it yesterday. Like if you knew you're going to die at some age, and you knew you only had so much money, and you could buy days like this, how much money would you spend? And the only answer I kept coming up with is tell me how much money I have so that I can divide that by the number of the maximum number of days. That's, that's all I want. I just want more of these days. I'm not afraid to work and do the things that give us the freedom, but, um, we got, we got to take advantage of the freedom. So you're bootstrapped, right? You haven't taken any outside investment. 
Uh, just recently we did a friends and family round of loans, but other than that, it's been all bootstrapped and being persuasive with our banker. Why did you choose to take outside funding from friends and family? Well, so we just had a huge opportunity. We've sown some seeds in Australia and the EU, and we got an opportunity to go really big, really fast. And, um, we needed the capital in order to fund the inventory and to fund the marketing budget behind it. Did you get what you went out to, to raise? We did. Yeah. Congratulations. That's super. Do you anticipate raising more money in the future? Or you, do you, what's your current opinion on that? No. I mean, now that we're in a really strong cash position and uh, just based on the performance of the business, I think we'll be able to fund future growth. So, Kevin, what do you think are your personality traits? We talked about your salespersonship. What other traits do you bring to your role as CEO of this company? You know, I, got, I clap a lot. You know, everyone has different things that they're really good at. And it's taken a while to figure that out. You know, we actually, you know, part of figuring that out, we went to uh, the Conscious Leadership Group just so we could have better conversations because, you know, we were a small company and people were afraid to say what was really at the heart of what was going on. And we were getting distracted and it was tough. And I personally, like one of my worst personality traits is when things aren't going the right way, I make everyone as uncomfortable as possible to make it happen. Like, I, I will make you feel bad about going to your mother's funeral because you have to get stuff done for the company. Yeah, it's not it's not a good personality trait. So I learned to, to, to curb that. I, I'm a little bit older than some of my partners. I'm about 10 years older, so I have a little bit different experience. So um, it's uh, it's remembering what it's like at that age. You know, like, I think in the last 10 years, one of the key things I figured out is my first idea is rarely the good one. It's the third idea. And I need to like take the breath and calm down because man, when I get that first idea, like watch out. Like I'll tell you and all my neighbors and everyone that what this idea is because I'm so excited about it. And usually it's, it, it's fine. But the third idea, like on top of that, that's, that one's actually really good. We like new. Even if we're doing good stuff, it's like, ooh, this new thing we haven't done. We should go do that. That's so exciting. And, uh, having the restraint to, to silence that a little bit or challenge like where it fits into priorities bringing structure and organization expectation setting so that we're not just having unbridled expectations and people understanding like when they are having success because everyone needs an attaboy and an attagirl and making sure that those happen. I got these big heavy hands. So like when I give you a pat on the back, like I think it feels different than when someone else does. So like making sure that that happens a lot. I'm not really good at celebrating small wins. I usually can tell you the 95 things that are wrong and skip right over the five good things. So um, I've made a big shift in the last couple of months of really celebrating our wins and talking about what we are doing good. And instead of like focusing on our bad spots, looking at them as opportunities and having a more collective conversation. But all, all this kind of goes into thinking about what kind of culture you want this company to have. And you're obviously on a really steep growth curve right now. Do you and your partners, co-founders spend time thinking about what that culture wants to look like, or are you pretty much focused on executing right now at the expense of that? Uh, no, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about it quite a bit. I mean, play is definitely one of the uh, most important things and having fun uh, is actually in like sort of a way that we decide how to operate the business. If something isn't fun or doesn't seem like a fun opportunity, then we really question if we want to do it or not making sure that everyone gets together and gets outside and goes climbing and mountain biking. And, you know, we had a killer winter. So we got some great weekday powder days, like uh, just playing as a group has been super important to us. And the execution, uh, like 
it gets easy to execute. It doesn't matter if it's two o'clock in the morning. If like, if you got great turns that day on like a, you know, 10 inch powder day, like you got a smile on your face. It doesn't matter. It's good. You got both. You got to play and then you get to do this fun thing, building the business. Do you worry about the business getting so big that having that kind of balance will get harder? No, it's just so important. I listened to this like TED talk from the CEO who built this amazing business through Central America. And he talked about how every Monday and Wednesday he has terminal days where he decides that if he was, if he was diagnosed with something that he was going to die from, what would he do? And he's done, he's done it all. But like two days a week, he does all these amazing things. But his most powerful line was, we figured out how to answer emails on Sunday, but we haven't figured out how to create time to go to the movies on Monday. That sucks. that's hilarious so what's your biggest learning edge right now you've talked a little bit about some of the shifts you're trying to make on seeing that the first idea may not be as good as the third idea what does kevin brown really have to learn in his next phase of running this company and being the leader oh so much um I fortunately have, have found some, some strong mentors, a whole bunch of people, but a, a couple of guys who have created different uh, businesses and uh, product businesses, and they've really taken me under their wing. And no, there's just so much. There's so much to know, uh, so much to learn. I mean, I just read this amazing book about pricing. And so there, there's a whole bunch of tactical stuff. And then there's like the big picture things of like finding more space and like when, like when is it appropriate to bring more people on because I have this like obsessively lean uh, mindset and let's talk about, let's talk about that a little bit because we've talked about this in the past. So you're calling it a lean mindset and that's one way to phrase it, but can you just talk a little bit more about this issue and how it plays into your thinking about your company? Okay. So from my point of view, the, 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 the most difficult thing to do in business is to rally human beings together to do something. It takes a lot, a lot of effort. So I just want a couple of awesome people who we can go really fast and we can do really cool things. And if it's not something we have to do, I believe we can likely outsource it. And there's a whole army of amazingly talented, brilliant freelancers that do everything from content creation to managing your SEO. To, it doesn't matter. Like, like every, every aspect, there are people who are really good at it. And arguably, there, there's people who are better than you at it. So when you know what you're really good at, that, that's the thing that you should be doubling down on. And the things you know that you're like, eh, I'm okay. Like, I'll, I'll probably tell someone else that I'm really good at it. But the heart of it, like, I'm not great at it. We should find someone who's better at it. And we should pay them a fair wage to, to do it for us because chances are it's not going to be a full-time job and it's going to be a good win for both of us. So how many people are full-time at your company right now? There's five full-time people and there are seven part-time people. Have you done a pro forma that takes you out two years? No. No, we, we only look at 90 days, like 90 day windows now. <laughs> Things happen too fast. <laughs> Those are really, really close friends and family. <laughs> you haven't built a pro forma. That's great. Okay. So as you look forward a year from now, how many full time people do you think will be in your company? Uh, maybe, maybe two or three more. Um, I don't know. It depends. Like, where we are right now, let's say things hypothetically keep going in this, in this storybook sort of growth pattern. So if that's the case, it could be different. Like we could have on staff people and we could have departments, like possibly. 
I don't know where we're going to be. So right now, this feels like the way that we can stay most focused. And when we have more options and we have more money in the bank and we have more needs, then then I think it's worth exploring that. But right now, I mean, like every every month, we look around and we say, like, cool, how are you doing? Like, are you are you breaking? Like, are, is your plate like did, at the start of the month? You have these things. Did you not get them done? Why? But everyone's everyone's doing good. Like everyone. Everyone's rolling. Everyone's been really honest about what they can and can't handle. We're, you know, we're, we're sticking to major things that actually impact the business instead of these busy lists. And it's, it's working and it's kind of surprising. Like there's a lot of stuff that doesn't have to be done. So, so there's no, no reason to get great at that crap. That sounds okay. That makes sense. Just for the sake of argument, can you see the potential costs of that mindset? And I wonder if you'd be willing to, at least even if you don't buy it. Even if you don't believe that those are costs, what could they potentially be going forward? We could bet on wrong. We could bet on wrong um, outsourcers. We could people could not perform as much. They could not care about our stuff as much. They could not think about it. So we could miss out on having someone who's you know on the team, psyched and obsessed, and they come up with some great idea that we didn't. We could. There's definitely that opportunity cost. There is the cost of not having like this cool kick-ass friction labs team and bringing more people into this, this existence, because I gotta tell you, it's pretty killer. So like, I, like if I was not on the team, like I would want to be on the team because it's, it's fun to be on friction labs. Um, so th- there's a cost to that. Um, but you know, like I- I've worked at a lot of companies and a lot of different companies and I've worked at big companies. I worked at small companies and I think every single company I worked at could have been so much better with their same team, with their same product, but if they could actually communicate and work well together. And there's, I, I have seen repeatedly that people, if you bring in the wrong people, they start to take too much ownership and entitlement on certain things and they create blocks because they don't want help from someone else because they want to, they want to say that they did this thing and all shapes, all sizes, all sexes, like it's just, it's it's a thing that I've seen, so I I want to avoid that. But but we'll see. Every, everything's everything's on the table. Cool. So what's one thing people would be surprised to know about you? I, I wake up every morning. I meditate for fifteen minutes. Um, so maybe not. Yeah, I probably didn't know about that. Um, I try and read like a book or two every month. So yeah, maybe those two things. What's the one book you think anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur should read? To Sell as Human by Daniel Pink. I'm so excited about the success of Friction Labs and everything you've built. It's been great to connect with you. Thanks for being on Real Leaders Radio. Really appreciate having you. Thanks for the opportunity, Sue. Appreciate it. You guys can learn more about Real Leaders Radio and learn more about Kevin Brown at frictionlabs.com. 